the following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. So how do we deal with some of the difficult texts in the Old Testament? How do we preach on them? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to our Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. We're going to shift things a little today. Normally, I'll talk about a bunch of things in the first half of the broadcast and then mainly go to calls, Jewish-related calls, the second half of the broadcast. Today, I'm going to be speaking with a guest at the bottom of the hour about preaching from the difficult texts of the Old Testament. How, how do we not just understand them, but use them to glorify God and build up the body? So, we'll be doing that later in the show. If you have a question, I'm going to try to get to questions earlier if I can. So, any Jewish-related question of any kind, by all means, give me a call. 866-348-7884. That is the number. Also, a reminder, if you get the Ask Dr. Brown Ministries app on your phone, ASKDR Brown Ministries, if you get that on your phone and you just scroll down to Real Messiah, you'll have our Jewish website right there at your fingertips. Answers to most common objections, full-length debates with rabbis, countering the counter-missionaries like Rabbi Tovia Singer and others, right there at your fingertips. Boom, click on it. So share that with your friends. It's a great resource. We're so excited to have it available for you on Apple or Android. That's the ASK D.R. Brown, Ask Dr. Brown Ministries app. Okay, so before we bring our guest on at the bottom of the hour, the Kanye West situation continues to generate massive controversy. So obviously, he's been a controversial figure for many years and tremendously loved and tremendously hated and massively successful. And I, I am not one who has studied hip hop in depth. I, I got into it and studied in the chapter that I wrote on, uh, it, on it in my book, The Power of Music. But I, I really do not have the position, background, culture, having investigated to understand some of the full appeal of someone like Kanye West. But obviously, there's something about what he's written, what he's expressed, how he's done it at different times that has really resonated with a large audience, making him as big and famous as he's been. And then as he's talked about more about a conversion to Jesus and change, I have heard from some people that were fairly close to him saying it was a genuine conversion and he's really been wanting to grow and my issue has always been, even so, the fact that he's a world-famous celebrity doesn't make him a world-famous Christian. You know, we've seen this for decades, centuries, I'm sure, that someone who's very well-known in the world and very seasoned in the world and very experienced in the world and used to living in all kinds of environments that most of us can't imagine, when that person gets saved, we have to remember they're still a baby. Great, they have a testimony, but they're still a baby. And they're not spokespeople and they shouldn't be looked to as leaders and, and they should be covered and protected much more than put on a platform. So that was always my concern, not whether his conversion was real, but has he been put on a platform prematurely? Is his voice being heard too much, 
prematurely? And has he really grown in sanctification and understood the implications of the gospel, etc.? And then others say, well, he's unstable. Okay, I'm not making those judgments. I'm simply just giving background. So when he made some statements recently, he was on Tucker Carlson. He said a lot of things that many of us as conservative Bible believers would agree with in terms of morals and culture and things like that. But then stuff that wasn't on the broadcast that could easily be construed as anti-Semitic. Then he comes out with his uh, death con, which he meant to say death con three on the Jews and so on. Well, actually, he's a Jew because he's black and blacks are Jews. But, hey, these Jews, they control the media and stuff. And he's going death con three, but he spelled it death con. And what does that mean? And was he was he calling for death? And no, it just meant being ready on the defensive. And Candace Owens, who's a friend, came to his defense and said, hey, We don't really know what he meant. Everyone's going ballistic. We don't really know what he meant. Well, then he said a lot more, and it's very clear that he was saying that Jews control vast parts of of the society, and you can't go against them, and so on, and so there's been a backlash. Now, you say, well, aren't Jewish people being a little hypersensitive at this point? Well, actually, can you imagine, can you imagine if, say, a, a prominent white leader major, major white figure, celebrity on a parallel with Kanye, that, that influential, that best-selling in, in, in his particular area, whatever it is, if that person came out with statements against black Americans, derogatory statements, statements that would be perceived as racist, there, there'd be a national outcry. And there would be all kinds of repercussions, and we'd expect it. Now, is it possible that we play the anti-Semite card too much? Yes, of course it's possible. Is it possible that we play the race card too much? Yes, it's possible. Of course there can be overreactions, right? But the fact that Kanye's become toxic is not a surprise, all right? But here's the problem. Here's the problem. By the reaction being so strong, and now this is costing probably hundreds of millions of dollars. Is this one stepping back and this one stepping back? I didn't even realize the degree of, of how far-reaching his financial empire was. I knew it was big, but because this one's pulling back, this one's pulling back. I didn't even know some of them had relationships with him because I'm not a, a Kanye West expert, all right? But now this, to the anti-Semites, this confirms the narrative. You see? This confirms the narrative. Aha! You see, the Jews do control everything. They control the banks. They control the media. They can control the financial realm. They control Hollywood. You see, they control social media. You see? You see? Because there are all these repercussions against them. So now that furthers the narrative that anti-Semites make that Jews control everything in America, if not the entire world. So the plot thickens in that regard. And then, if you're ready for the gossip column type stuff... I get an email from my dear friend, Rabbi Shmuley, just on his email list, not a personal email from him. And he's upset because his daughter sent out a note, but she's in her early 20s, maybe something like that. Uh, she sent out a note and posted this on our Instagram account to Kansas Owens. And she had subscribed to follow Candace more closely, enjoyed her content. But she basically said, hey, you know, Candace, don't, don't mess with the Jews. In other words, saying, look, your, your defense of Kanye is misguided. He said enough now to clarify his position. It, it's not a good position. You shouldn't be defending him or standing with him. And look, you mess with the Jews. There are consequences. And Candace Owens, in turns, 
posts and you know as if she's being threatened now and and is this right and why would someone do this and pushes back and now Shmuley's saying how dare you attack my daughter and so on and it's like oh oh boy so the thing has blown up here's here's my perspective because i'm not bringing it up for gossip column stuff as you know that's not what the show is about I'm, I'm not bringing it up just because it's hot news because we always want to be constructive. We want there to be more light than heat. After all, if I'm being introduced as your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity, that's what I want to bring in the midst of this. So first, for Kanye West, my take from a distance is that he has had some type of spiritual encounter that Jesus is important to him, the Bible is important. Look, remember when he was married to Kim Kardashian? And, and saying she shouldn't wear certain clothes because it's, you know, it's not right. It's like, whoa, that's something does seem to be going on in his heart. I don't know if he's walking with the Lord now, if he truly knows God, if it's a matter of, like I said, sanctification and growth. I don't know. I'm not his judge. And here's the good news. Neither are you. We leave him to God. But as best as I can see from the outside with the same information you have, he is more misinformed than hostile. That's just my take. I'm not demonizing him. In fact, to me, he's someone you could really pray for. You know what I'm saying? It feels easy to pray for him as opposed to some people you have such an attitude towards and they're so bent on evil and destruction. Lord, I'm praying for them, but it's almost hard to pray for them. I find him to be someone that's very easy to pray for God's best. So I'm not out to demonize him. All right. I'm not out to further attack him or say, well, everybody run from him. No, this is the time when if he can have some really solid believers around him, I don't know who has access to his life, not just to help him grow in Jesus, but to deliver him from some of these myths that, that the blacks are the true Jews and, and, and the Jews control everything and these kinds of things. And by the way, a small majority, excuse me, a small minority of the world black population is Jewish. A small minority the world white population is Jewish. Those are realities, right? Now, it, it so happens that white Jews make up a higher number of people than black Jews that we know, unless they're just many more of, of the tribes of Israel descended somehow that we that ming, intermingled the things that we don't know about, that the numbers are even higher. Now that there are more hidden Jews than we know about. But either way, e- either way, to me, it's a matter of getting right information to him from sources that he can believe. Come on, let's be honest. We all have sources we trust and sources we don't trust. We all have friends we trust and friends we don't trust. Leaders we trust, leaders we don't trust. So let's pray that that God will impact his life more deeply, that it won't be a matter of him groveling to try to apologize because he's lost so much money. And my guess is he wouldn't be the kind of person to do that. Even though money's important to him, it seems that, that his ideologies to him are even more important. But let's pray that, that God would deepen his experience with him. If he knows the Lord, that it would go deeper. If he's known about him but doesn't really know him, that he would really come to know him. And that he would get rightly informed. Because my view is that there should be a great coalition between blacks and Jews that there should be a coalition of peoples who have both been oppressed, 
who have both been enslaved, who have both been cast out, who have both been persecuted minorities, who have a certain soul connection in that regard, who have histories that intersect more than we might realize, that, that there should be a solidarity of standing with each other as opposed to looking at one another as enemies. So let's really pray that God would use this situation for good and for education as opposed to to deepen and heighten and increase anti-Semitism in America. And may God give resolution. Maybe there'll be a great family meeting with Rabbi Shmuley and his daughter and Candace Owens and others, and they could have a, a love fest. Let it be. They're all smart people with important messages. Let's see where this goes. All right, we'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. May 2023 is going to be here before we know it. You know how I know that? Because we're in already November. We're in November. 2022, where did the year go? A few more days, we're in November. Boom. And then the holidays and then New Year. And before you know it, God willing, we'll be standing in Israel together, May of 2023. Just got some really neat news that some more friends from a house of prayer that really prays for Israel and supports me in prayer on a weekly basis and and some of the folks on a daily basis, that a number of them are going to be joining us, which means... We're going to have some real good prayer times. Oh, yeah, I I can feel it already. Some real powerful intercession for Israel in Israel. So join if if it's it's worth it. You say, yeah, it costs a lot to go to Israel and stay in the nice hotels. It's a fabulous tour. Once you're actually there, you're like, whoa. You get a lot for the money. But, yeah, it's a, a substantial investment, especially if you're coming with several people. But, oh, it's worth it. It is worth it. So if you've been thinking about it, do it because we still do have limited space. There is space left, all right, because we open up extra rooms. We still have space, but the sooner you get your deposit in, the better. Do it on our website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's see what Paul wrote there about the gospel and the Jewish people. So 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So in other words, those who are wise in their own understanding, God is going to silence. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, God set it up that just through being smart 
and, and have a worldly wisdom, you're not going to figure out God because there needs to be that dependence, that faith, that humility. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Messiah crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Messiah Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, quoting Jeremiah 9, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So I, I want to think back to those words that we read. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Messiah crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks folly, but to those of us who are being saved, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Greeks means Jews and Gentiles, the whole world, Messiah, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, in the next chapter, Paul explains that he preached Messiah crucified, Christ crucified. That was the center of his message. That was the focus of his message. And it wasn't with words of human wisdom that he spoke, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that their faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So the point is not that there is no power, and that there is no wisdom. The point is that the power and the wisdom is released through the cross, that the power and the wisdom is found in the cross and not in, okay, here's a miraculous sign such as, uh, Let's just raise our hands and now the stars will, you know, rearrange and spell out something in the sky, you know, give that appearance. Or I'm going to give this masterfully wise exposition of, of some philosophical concept that three people on the planet can understand. And if you get this right, you can be saved. No. However, think of this. When Jesus was on the earth, he was constantly healing the sick and driving out demons. And the religious leaders said to him, give us a sign. That's not what they were looking for. Those were the biblical signs. That's the biblical power that's released through the cross. All right. But the sign that they were looking for was some type of messianic proof. Okay. You know, right now I'm going to create the temple, bring it to right here or do this or do that. You know, whatever would have been applicable at that time frame. No, he wasn't going to do that. And, and he knew that was just a sensationalism. And that was just a skepticism. Because whatever you do, well, do more. Well, that's not enough. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, they'll go even further. Don't let anyone die or don't, whatever. However, he constantly worked miracles. Re remember that. And he says elsewhere, if you don't believe me, believe based on the miracles because I'm doing the Father's work. So for those who say, oh, when we preach the gospel, if there's signs, wonders, and miracles, that's, that's, that's what the, the skeptics wanted. They wanted the sign. No, no, no. They wanted a different kind of sign. They, they wanted something that would fit their messianic expectations. 
Okay, we're, we're going to conquer Jerusalem and drive out the Romans tomorrow, you know, or whatever. No, he wasn't going to do that. But the healings, the miracles, that was an expression of the Messianic era breaking in, of the kingdom of God breaking in. That continues to this moment. As the kingdom of God advances, the powers of darkness are driven back, as a result of which there is healing and deliverance. That just happens, and the character of God is made manifest in his goodness and by healing. So when Paul says Jews demand a sign, it doesn't mean we don't pray for the sick. It doesn't mean when the gospel is preached that the sick aren't healed. What it means is, is that we are not going to do a demonstration according to the expectations of these religious people who want us to prove this or to prove that or to bring in some other messianic expectation into reality based on their end time beliefs. That's not going to happen. But when we preach Messiah crucified and someone believes, first and foremost is the power of God to be saved, the power of God to be delivered from sin, the power of God to be forgiven, the power of God to, to go from death to life, from, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. That's, that's, the, that's the first demonstration of power. And with it, many other things that God does to glorify his name, including healing the sick and driving out demons and other things like that. But first and foremost, the power to be transformed. It's a stumbling block to Jews, but the crucified Messiah, no. No, Messiah's gonna rule and reign. Messiah's gonna establish his kingdom. The things that we are expecting and awaiting Jesus to do when he returns, some of those same things are the things that traditional Jews were waiting for the Messiah to, to do the first time around. You know, destroy the wicked and set up the kingdom of God on the earth and bring universal peace and, and the whole world that, that remains into the knowledge of the one true God and so on and so forth. And of course, in Jewish expectation, we gather the exiles and rebuild the temple. But certainly to this moment, Yes, Jews may be looking for all kinds of signs and wonders and things that, okay, prove this, prove that. The sign that's going to come is that through the preaching of the cross, you can be saved, you can be transformed, you can be set free, and you can be healed as well. This is part of what is proclaimed in the gospel and part of the power that's released. To the Greeks, it's folly. It's folly. It's nonsense. It's crucified, but that's just weakness. Crucified Messiah. The, the 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 lowest death. Oh, be like today. Oh, so you're your guy, your savior guy. That's the one that ten years ago was on death row and was electrocuted for his crimes. That's your guy? Oh, and he's the savior of the world? Oh yeah, right. Sure. So that that's how it sounded to Greeks. A display of weakness to Romans as well. But through the preaching of the cross, the wisdom of God is revealed. That he doesn't save us through our intellect as if the really smart get in and the really dumb can't and only the educated or can understand God. No, no. Through the wisdom of God, he saves sinners and rebels through the crucifixion of this Jewish carpenter who is actually God in the flesh. It is so transcends our wisdom. And, and, and Paul writes to the Colossians that in him, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And here Paul writes, yes, to the Jews, this message of Messiah crucified is a stumbling block to Greeks. It is foolishness, but to those who are being saved, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you don't know him, especially on this Thursday Jewish Thursday, if you're a Jewish person 
and, and you're being pulled, you're being stirred, go right now to the Real Messiah website, realmessiah.com. Maybe watch a debate or, or get some of your questions answered. And if God's really dealing with you, there's a prayer of redemption. You can actually watch where, where we talk about it, what it means to be born from above and have your sins forgiven. And may I quote once again, One of my favorite verses I quote over and over from the book of Isaiah. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the guilt of all of us. When we recognize that and put our trust in him, the guilt is gone. Forgiveness comes. New life comes. All right. We will be right back with our special guest. Don't go anywhere. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Sacred words from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Michael Brown here, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. I've really been looking forward to talking to the author of the book, Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. Brian Murawski is a pastor, a professor, PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary. There's a whole lot to dive into here. Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the broadcast today. Thanks for having me. So, Brian, did your book arise out of being a pastor and thinking through how to make the whole Bible relevant to your people? Or is this just a personal journey you've been on yourself? Uh, I think I would say a little bit of both. The, the book, the idea came up as I was in, in the pulpit preaching and I'm, I'm an expository preacher, so I, I'll pick a book of the Bible and work my way through it. And what I found was in every book that I was preaching, there were always challenges that I, I really couldn't find a good homiletical solution to. Uh, that I would I would find answers to them and maybe some commentaries and, and some hermeneutical suggestions or interpretive suggestions. But I, I continually found myself asking the question, how do I preach this? Uh, in particular, the genealogies of Genesis is what really struck me uh, initially preaching through Genesis and, and having the genealogy sitting there before me and thinking, I've never been taught how to preach a genealogy before, but they're all over this book. I don't want to ignore it. I believe it's part of Scripture, and therefore it ought to be preached. Yeah, and, and by the way, folks, the, the table of contents here reads great. Let me just take a moment to go through it. Pastors, you'll want to get this. Preaching family trees, preaching devilish details, preaching geography, preaching law, preaching blood and guts, preaching PG-13 texts, preaching in tongues, preaching theologically loaded texts, preaching parallel texts, preaching the Goliaths. Now, Brian, you say, and I want to quote this directly, all scripture points in some way to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly points to Jesus, and it's we who are at fault for not seeing it. 
So in your mind, honestly, do you really believe that the Old Testament is just as inspired in terms of being God-breathed in God's word as, say, the, the Gospel of John is? Are they inspired in the same way? Absolutely. And I wouldn't say just in my mind. I, I look at that text from Second Timothy three sixteen and 17. Yep. All Scripture is God-breathed. And, and notice how Paul connects that right in chapter 4. He flows into this thought that, therefore, preach the Word, right? Preach this Word that is all inspired. But when Paul wrote that, most you know, there, there were some books in the New Testament that were written. Um, maybe, maybe we could even say the majority, but not all. His primary reference there is the Old Testament that the, the Old Testament Scripture is inspired, it's still useful, and one cannot help but read the Old Testament in the New as you're reading the New Testament. Um, yeah. th- there's, there's not a book you can, you can get through in the New Testament without having some sort of foundational basis in the Old, and, and whether through the quotations, the allusions, the, um, just, just the foundational theology that is there, it's clear that, that the New Testament authors believed the Old Testament was just as inspired and relevant as the stuff that was getting put out that day. Yeah, and, and when they, the, the new idea was the stuff that was getting put out that day was also on the same par of what had come before because that was already established to them as, as first century Jews and this was scripture. So when they got up and preached Jesus, that's the Bible they had. And that's, that's, right. what, they're, that's what they're preaching from. All right, so let's, let's work through a few areas here. And again, friends, to get, the full content, because we just touch on things. Preaching difficult texts of the Old Testament. Brian Murawski spelled M-U-R-A-W-S-K-I. The genealogies. Have you ever seen where people go through the Hebrew names in Genesis 5 and, oh, that's preaching the gospel? you got to read a lot into that to make it and jump over some other things. You're not talking about some artificial you know, playing around with the text to, to get the gospel out of it. You're talking about something much deeper and more true to the text. So what do you do with the genealogies? That's right. I, I'm glad you said that. The, the genealogies are just as much part of the theology of the book that you're reading as any other text around it. So one of the things I encourage people to do is to say, if I took this genealogy out of Scripture, what would change in the author's argument? Mm. And and that's one way, I think, to get at the point of that genealogy, to get at the meaning behind it. It's not by digging into the names and figuring out what does this name mean, what does that name mean, and we can find Jesus in that. Uh, it's, it's by saying that these genealogies are part of the flow of the narrative. You, don't, you never see a book of genealogies in Scripture. In other words, you, never see, you don't have a, a, a book of the Bible that's just a list of names. They're always found embedded within narrative which means that they're flowing into the narrative or they're flowing from the narrative, but they are part of the story that the author's telling. They're, they're positioned in the particular place that they are to tell a story uh, and to continue the theology of the narrator. So, so thinking about that Genesis 5 genealogy, it's not, it's not that we look behind the names and try to figure out what do they mean, some secret code there. We recognize that flowing out of Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, this, this theology of death, that sin brings death. Then you get to Genesis 5, and you see this pattern of so-and-so lived this many years, they had this kid, they lived this many more years, and died, and died, and died, and died, all the way until you get to Enoch, who, of course, then he was not. You know, he walked with God, and he was not. Uh, and then everyone else died, died, died. So the idea here is that this, this theology of walking with God helps us to avoid death 
I think it's part of what you see in Genesis chapter 5 in that genealogy. And that flows right from Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve not walking with God in the garden, and of course death is a result. And then right into the texts that are to come, Genesis 6, you meet this guy named Noah, who also walked with God, he avoids death. So the theology of this genealogy really rises to the surface when you treat it seriously within the narrative context that it's situated in. All right, let's, let's just go a little deeper then. First Chronicles, when someone starts reading that, it's like, okay, maybe it's a chapter of name. Well, no, it's two, <laughs> it's three. Now, you do have a, a couple little anecdotes. That, you know, the, the famous prayer of Jabez became famous because of the Bruce Wilkinson book, you know, in the fourth chapter right. or... Right. Or, you know, a notice like in the fifth chapter that, that many died in the, in the war because the war was of the Lord. Or a fascinating statement about Joseph and the firstborn, but most like, what's that about? But anyway, I mean, you're, you're like 10, 11 chapters into the book. So what are the genealogies doing there? What, what happens if we don't have that and we just, let's just start with David. What, what are we missing? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a particular challenge for people, especially when they're reading the Bible through the year, you know, <laughs> you get the first <laughs> right, chronicles right, right. and then you've got a week of this uh, genealogy. But one of the things I do with my, my Bible students here at Cairn University is I put up on the screen a, an outline of the genealogy of First Chronicles 1-9. to And what you see there is you see the chronicler, we'll call, we'll call whoever wrote it the chronicler, we, we see him highlighting the themes that will become much more clearly evident throughout the rest of the book in, in the book of Chronicles. Mm. So David, his tribe gets a massive genealogy. He gets 70-something verses of a genealogy, whereas some of the other tribes, like Naphtali, gets like a verse, and that's it. We don't care about Naphtali in First Chronicles because we're focused, on, we're focused on David, we're focused on Judah. Saul's story, he gets, he gets a chapter, a little smattering here and there. Benjamin gets a little bit because Saul's from Benjamin, but really it's just to kind of point the way to David, because part of the theology of Chronicles is that the true Judean kings are the true Judean kings. They are the true kings of Israel. It, we're, not, we're not toggling back and forth like the Book of Kings does between northern kings and southern kings. We're only focused on southern kings, the Judean kings in Chronicles. And the, and the the genealogies of First Chronicles 1-9 to actually point towards that theology in both subtle and very big ways. So you, you strip out that genealogy, I think one of the things that you see is that you don't have the pedigree for David that you would otherwise. You, the, the genealogy is kind of used as a way of bolstering um, his legitimacy to that throne, that he is true king of Israel, and, and his descendants are what matters. And, of course, that ultimately points to the Messiah, right? Points to Jesus, yeah. who is um, from the tribe of Judah, and that true Davidic king uh, that, that the Old Testament anticipates. You know, what I find interesting, Brian, is, is the last few years I started listening to the Bible as well as reading it and studying it, just to use time in my car. And what, what I realized was that I really... I'll, I'll read through the genealogies at a different pace than other parts, but when I'm listening, you realize, well, that's a, that's a lot of stuff there, and there's got to be a reason for it. So we, we got a couple minutes before break, then a, a bunch more questions if you can stay on, but the, the, the details. You know, you're reading through the book of Numbers, maybe, and it says, okay, and this, the Israelites, this tribe brought A, B, C, D, E sacrifices, and then this tribe brought a, B, C, D, E. It's like, just say the same. Each one did this. You know, why, why repeat it? Did, did, obviously, it was important to the authors, and God chose to put that 
in Scripture. Right. What do we make of it? There, there is an import to the repetition. In Numbers, you, you can easily, yeah, some of that could have easily been summarized in two, three verses, and we're moving on to the, the more fun narratives, right? Yep. But part of the function of that repetition is to get us to slow down and to recognize this is really serious stuff to God. Um, mm. when, when I was a teenager, my mom taught me how to do the laundry, right? And she would, at first, kind of walk me through, okay, did you, did, you put, did you separate the colors? Did you put the right colors in? Did you put the laundry detergent in? Did you turn it on 60 minutes? You know, she would walk through that whole thing every single time, and that would help me to realize I'm not missing any steps here. So some of the function of the repetition is to make sure that we're, we're recognizing the seriousness of this material, and some of it is also in recognizing the meticulous obedience that the Israelites at times had. Uh, they weren't exactly known for their, their obedience in the, the Old Testament, but there were times when they were meticulously obedient in the way that God desired, like, like when God gives them the tabernacle instructions. Yeah. I, I spent some time with the tabernacle in my book and, and talk about how some of those chapters, they look forward um, to, here's what you need to build, Moses, in, in exquisite detail. And then some of the chapters, as you go, look backwards and say, yep. okay, now the Israelites did exactly what God said, and it repeats all that detail to let you know they didn't miss anything. They mm. did exactly what God wanted them to do. Yeah. So that detail has a narrative and a theological function that if we just skim over it or skip over it, we, we can really, I think, sometimes lose yeah. the, the import of what we're studying. Yeah, all right. I'm, I'm going to jump in here. We've got a few more minutes with Brian Lorowski. Check out the book, Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us. A little, little early, a day early for Shabbat celebration. I'm joined by pastor and professor Brian Morawski. His new book, Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. Uh, Brian, it's one thing for a believer to be able to explain to a non-believer or a Christian struggling with doubt, what do we do with these texts about drive out the Canaanites? What, what do we do about these texts that seem harsh in their treatment of prisoners or the Israelites could enslave a, f- a foreign prisoner or something like that? It's one thing to try to explain it in a way that might be satisfactory, but you're saying we need to go beyond that and preach these texts for edification and ultimately glorifying Jesus. So let's dive in again, friends. All we're doing is touching the surface to get the full import. That's why books are written. But uh, Brian, help us navigate that. Some of the most difficult texts of the Old Testament, uh, Samuel's uh, command to Saul to slaughter the Amalekites, things like that. What do we do with them and how do we preach from them in an edifying way? Sure, we, we do so with a careful view towards their context. In fact, just this past Sunday, I, I was teaching a Sunday school class on that First Samuel 15, where Saul is told to go and slay the Amalekites, and one of the first things we did was we walked back to Deuteronomy, we walked back even before that to Exodus, 
and saw how these Amalekites had a long history with Israel and how there was a reason that God was saying, you need to go wipe these people out. And it was something that had a, um, a profound import in Saul's kingship and then later David's kingship as that transition happened between one and the other. So when we're, when we're preaching these texts, we want to do so with a great sensitivity to the audience that we're preaching to, uh, realizing there are people who have probably come from very violent homes, very violent situations. So we want to be sensitive to that. But we also want to make sure that we're not watering down the violence in the text or making it say something it's not. Uh, it, it's not always easy to preach the Old Testament. All right, so let's let's dig a little deeper. Why was it right for these people to be put to death? And what has a child ever done to deserve a penalty like that because of what previous generations did? Yeah, that's a, that's a very challenging question that I think if I can begin to unpack a little bit of it, back in the book of Exodus, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites, kind of came out of nowhere, and God said to them, once you get into the land, he said to the Israelites, once you get into the land, you've got to wipe this tribe out. Their influence is no good. Uh, th- this is a group of people who were just ungodly uh, to the extreme. And part of the nature, the function of the Israelite king was to show the people the way to root out that sin in the land. So when God tells them to wipe all these Amalekites out, including the the kids and including the animals and and everything from soup to nuts, uh, part of what God is doing here is symbolically showing the Israelites this is the way to eradicate sin from this land. Um, how is it how is it right for the child? I think there's a lot of different ways that we can we can answer that. Um, I, I think what gives me comfort is knowing that God as creator has the ability to take life, to give life, and we can rest in some of that sovereignty and that idea that God knows even greater than we do. Uh, and also recognizing if those kids were to grow up in the Amalekite household, they were destined to a life of paganism, a life of ungodly behavior. And, and there was really no chance for them to, to come to know the Lord in that way. Yeah, and I think, Brian, also, we have to say these are difficult texts and then be honest, lest we just seem oblivious to human reality, human suffering, and pain, and things like that, or how it would right. seem to be carried out today. At the same time, it's, to me, it's always so helpful to emphasize the character of God as revealed in, in the Old Testament. In a psalm like Psalm 103, his incredible mercy and compassion and long-suffering, that's the same God. It's, it's not right. like he suddenly switched. That's the, the, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, not a different deity as, as Marcion or others would have emphasized. Yeah. Uh, one and, one and last... Even, yeah, go ahead, please. Sure, I was just going to say, and even if we don't fully comprehend exactly why God gave that command, by looking at his character elsewhere, we, we are very clearly to trust in the goodness fairness, the justice of God. So we might not fully figure out 1 Samuel 15 theologically, but we can trust in his goodness. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's even with issues of heaven and hell and loved ones that didn't know the Lord, yeah. that's where we land, that ultimately we know, we know this God is Father and who is extremely merciful and compassionate that waits to carry out certain judgments to give time to repent. That's the God we're dealing with. All right, one last question. Obviously, we could go on for, for hours, but give, give us one nugget that we'll find in the book of kind of a, a discovery of Jesus in the Old Testament or an emphasis, something that, that has really blessed you over the years or that has blessed your congregation or your, your, your university students as you've taught. 
Sure. The the work that I do, I have a whole chapter on preaching the law, uh, the law of the Old Testament. And that chapter, I think more than any other, has been very helpful for me. I've I've actually preached all the way through Exodus. I've preached through Leviticus. And uh, the, the principles that I give there in that chapter, recognizing how God is um, seen in the law, in, in his character. The law is not just given arbitrarily, but each law demonstrates how we can love God, how we can love others. It demonstrates the character of God. It points to the gospel, ultimately. That, that has been very, very helpful for me in uncovering and understanding how some of these Old Testament texts, like the law, can still be applicable to a Christian today. So just to, to follow up on that, when, when Paul writes in Romans 3, does this faith abolish law? No, in fact, it establishes. What do you think he meant there? It's not that we throw the law out as Christians. It's fulfilled in Christ. Christ perfectly filled up or fulfilled the law through his righteousness and his obedience to it. But uh, we can still take the principles of the law and, and some of the uh, truths that we find in it in regard to the character of God, the character of humanity, and those are the things that we can apply today. Got it. Yeah, and with that also, it reinforces that to just live by faith. You know, that, again, when you say mm-hmm. you know, take out the genealogies and what's missing, right? So the same way, take out, just even the thought of it, take out the Old Testament base from the new. I mean, it's so mm-hmm. interwoven in every respect. Right. You, you can't do it. So regaining that appreciation is a wonderful thing. Hey, thanks for, for putting in the work to do this. I've worked with Hendrickson. They, they do a great job putting out a great product. So keep getting the truth out. Appreciate it, Brian. Thanks for having me. You bet. All right. Again, the book, Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. When, um, when we got the, you know, we, we get stacks of books pretty much every week uh, with potential authors to have on. And if I had several hours a day of radio, then I'd probably do more interviews with other authors. But there's so much I want to talk to you about. We want to have time to take your calls. Uh, I've got things we've just put out we want to share with you. So we're, we're very selective about this. But this is one of these topics, you know, as, as, as someone that did special scholarship in Old Testament and doing Jewish apologetics all these decades, interacting with rabbis and things. And this is the turf that we have in common, the Hebrew Bible called the Tanakh, the Old Testament. It's, it's a joy to have something practical like this. Oh, by the way, by the way, maybe some of you aren't familiar with the term Tanakh. So since I've got a minute before we're done, so it is three letters in Hebrew, T, N, and then K. But when the K is after a vowel, it becomes H. So Tanakh, all right? So it is the the Jewish way of referring to the Hebrew Bible. A a religious Jew will refer, refer to Tanakh. They won't say the Hebrew Bible. That's what academics say. They won't say the Old Testament. That's what Christians say. For them, it's the Tanakh. So the first, the T, is Torah. And you have these acronyms. It's just very, very common in Jewish literature that you put the letters together into a word. So the first T, that's Torah, first letter, Torah. That is the first five books. So the Pentateuch, five books of Moses, same as in our English Bibles. The next letter, N, Nevi'im, that's prophets. The former prophets, the latter prophets. You say, what does that mean? In the Hebrew Bible, the division is different of the books. So this is Joshua, Judges, 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. That's the former prophets. It's believed that these books were written by prophets, these historical books. Then the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12 minor prophets. That's the middle section called Nevi'im, prophets. The last section is Ketuvim, Ketuvim. So, at the beginning, but it's after the vowel, Tanakh, right? Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, T-N-K. Ketuvim means writings, that's everything else. So the historical books we, we didn't have included, such as Esther, such as First and Second Chronicles. Other books like Daniel, not part of the prophets, but part of the writings. And then wisdom and poetry literature, Psalms, Job, and then Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Ruth is among the historical books. So all those books are part of Ketuvim. So the exact same books, but different order than we have uh, in, in our Old Testaments, which follows a different ancient Jewish order that's found in the Septuagint, where you have the law, the historical books, the writings, poetry, wisdom, literature, and then the prophets. So same books, different order. So Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. And if you hear religious Jew refer to Nach, that just means the rest of the books outside of Torah. So Tanakh, Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, identical except different order in some of the books in Christian Old Testament versus Hebrew Bible slash Tanakh. Just so you want to know that. Did you, did you download the app yet? What? You haven't? Ask Dr. Brown, ASK Dear Brown Ministries. Download it today, Apple, Android. Enjoy it. Back with you tomorrow. Another program powered by the Truth Network.